0: Welcome to the Horizons by Hopkins podcast, a mini-series where we chat with guests from different careers and walks of life to help us discover what lies beyond. I am Ona Androzayta, and today I am talking to Ken Igarza, a master's in neuroscience from Princeton University, who has a passion for people and problem-solving to learn more about his journey as an NSF GRFP graduate researcher at Princeton. Thank you, Ken, for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> Great. Uh, so to start uh, with, Ken, uh, briefly, can you share with us a summary of your career journey?
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, so uh, I'll give you a little bit of context beyond that, uh, just so you get to know a little bit more about me. Uh, but I was born in Cuba, and when I was three, I moved to Italy, where I spent the majority of my life. I spent about 13 years living in Italy, and then because of the recession in 2011, my family decided to move to the United States, so we we settled in Naples, Florida. People always get confused because I say that I live in Italy, so they think it's Naples, Italy, but it's not. <laughs> uh, and it was great living in Naples for a few years. I went to high school there, and the transition from Italy to the U.S. was really challenging because I, you know, I was fifteen when I had to learn English from scratch, and I, I obviously had to navigate a very, you know, completely new education system. But underlying all of this, there was this drive, right, that was um, set in stone by my immigrant mom, which was, you need to take your education seriously if you want to, um, you know, be successful in life. So when I was in high school, I was very intent on taking advantage of every single opportunity I had and not really uh, think of my, you know, um, English skills as necessarily a barrier to my success. So I was very involved and very uh, successful academically and, you know, outside of the classroom, and that opened a lot of doors for me. I ultimately chose to go to Emory University in Atlanta uh, because of uh, an incredible financial aid uh, package that allowed me to essentially go to college for free. Um, But uh, when I got to Emory, I was sort of stunned by the fact that I was grossly unprepared for college, Uh, you know, and, and I think that that goes to I think that goes to talk about the fact that As a first generation immigrant and um, from a low-income background, right? Like going to public school can sometimes not really adequately prepare you for the reality of a college. And more than that, a college like Emory. So for me, I feel like when I got to Emory, I, I, you know, was so confident and I was so excited. But I think the reality of what college was going to be like setting fairly quickly, I want to say. And it was very challenging. That transition was very, very challenging. Nonetheless, I had the intuition that, you know, if I wanted to become a physician or a scientist, I had to jump into a research opportunity as early as I possibly could. And I, had, I was very privileged because prior to going to Emory, I was doing a summer orientation program in the university that uh, catered to uh, students from underrepresented backgrounds like me. And at this program, it was called GLUE. Uh, and the the whole point of the program was to sort of give you a little bit of uh, an exposure to what college is going to be like once you get to Emory. Um, uh, In retrospect, it was an incredible community building program and I learned a lot, but what was striking about it was that you could network with graduate students uh, that were doing research. And I met at the time, uh, Dr. Im Dan, who was then a graduate student, but is now at um, the Jackson Lab, um, Jackson Labs in May. And I said, oh, so I know that you study Parkinson's disease. Can I please join your research lab? She agreed. um, And obviously it wasn't her research lab. Uh, Dr. Gary Miller was uh, spearheading um, the lab, a very well-known neurotoxicologist um, that is interested in studying the molecular underpinnings of Parkinson's disease. And I want to say that I was in that research lab a week before my college experience literally began. Uh, I spent... um, I think uh, I I sort of leaned onto the door of research a lot after that. And as I did that, these opportunities kind of came, um, you know, flowing in. (laughs) Uh, After having a bit of research experience, I spent a couple of summers at Columbia uh, as a Howard Hughes Medical Institute uh, Summer Research Fellow. And I worked with Richard Axel. Um, He won the Nobel Prize in 2004 for figuring out uh, olfactory receptors. So that was an incredible research experience that helped me think even deeper about research. And then I came back to Emory and decided to apply to graduate school. I received a lot of validation from my mentors, from my peers. Ken, you've done so much research, you should consider graduate school. And having been a student my whole life, it made sense to do that. It made sense. I had really just tied my whole identity to to research. And that was the next step to continue doing that. I've been at Princeton for three years. And I want to say that I have grown so much. I, I really couldn't have imagined, you know, these three years going any 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 in any other way. I've learned so much, uh, especially in the computational side, because Princeton is very well known for sort of getting you up to speed on a lot of computational methods in neuroscience, which involves programming computational tools. And uh, I joined Annegret Faulkner's lab. Uh, she studies how social motivation arises in the brain and how it executes uh, social behaviors. And very recently, I think I had a very long conversation with myself about there being some major incompatibility between the daily work of the PhD and who I am as a person, which is not a conversation that I've ever been able to have because I felt I needed to continue in research. I had invested so much, but I think I'm at a point where I want to be true to myself and I want to be true to what really matters to me and make a a leap of faith into the outside world. (laughs) So that's a little bit about me that was long-winded but i hope it was informative
0: <laughs> no absolutely uh so that uh kind of takes us right to the next question um could you tell us what a typical work day looks like for you now
1: yeah totally so i'm still enrolled in my phd so uh my day-to-day looks very much like the day-to-day of a, of a normal scientist i do experiments i collect data i do data analysis and then i crunch the numbers talk to my advisor and you know, formulate new hypotheses that then inform the next experiments that I'm going to do. The cycle continues, and that, that's pretty much what my day uh, looks like. But I'm at also I'm also at a point where my day also looks like applying to several jobs that you know fit the criteria of what I'm interested about. Namely, I'm interested in um, transitioning onto a field that has much more people interaction. So I'm I'm really hoping to use my people skills and my communication skills. On a, as part of my of my daily responsibilities, which is not something that I get to do now, because as a scientist, you know this, a right? It's a very lonely process. It can be a very lonely process. Um, I also am looking for a work environment that really values shorter term projects. Uh, for example, my PhD right now looks like an empty ocean. Uh, I I really can't see the other side of, 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 you know, that ocean. So it's quite intimidating and I would much prefer being given the opportunity to work on shorter term projects that have instant impactful uh, rewards at the end. Uh, And finally, I think that I want to also use my analytical skills in a profession where the data that I'm, that I'm, that I'm looking at uh, has significantly, significant more implications to, uh, problems that impact people, uh, for example, in the healthcare field or in the life sciences field as a whole, but specifically in the industry side. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. No, that's great. Uh, and actually, that brings us to the next question. Uh, you mentioned you know the skills that you hope to apply uh, once you, you, you go into the next stage of your career. So, what kinds of skills from graduate school do you think are most valuable going into the job market?
1: Yeah, definitely. I can speak on this topic quite extensively because uh, the biggest lesson that I think I have applied from my journey as a scientist to hopefully a consultant or an analyst in the coming months is that at the end of the day, the resume writing process and the, um, the job application process is an exact science too. And what do I mean by that? At the end of the day, every single thing that you do in life, whether or not you think is professional, has something to do with your marketability in the job market. I spent a few weeks sitting down with myself and thinking about everything I've done as a PhD student. And I came up with a list of hundreds of things I've done that I can translate onto a resume. For example, I collect data. I manage data. I create automated analysis pipelines. I design experiments. I test hypotheses. I uh, uh, manage timelines. I do long-term project planning, all of those skills, all of the things that you do inside of the PhD settings can truly be marketed within your resume and can really make you stand out. Um, And in my case, it's been really successful because I haven't done any of the jobs that I'm I'm applying to, but the interviews are flowing in. And I, I think my intuition for that is that I have, I think, intuition on how to market the skills that you have and um, and, and stand out relative to the competition, which I think is, is a great skill to have. But that's just in the professional sense. Like, I also feel like it's really important as a graduate student to practice non-scientific skills inside of a leadership capacity of some type. And for me, that has mostly been within an organization that I co-founded at Princeton called EPSB which stands for Empowering Diversity and Promoting Scientific Equity at Princeton. I was really upset about the fact that institutions like Princeton accept students from first-generation low-income backgrounds or from other underrepresented backgrounds, for example, queer-identifying folks, folks with disabilities. But then once these students are accepted into PhD programs, there doesn't really seem to be a lot of support at the level of the research experience itself, meaning the professor, and also at the level of departments to really enrich the experience of these students so that they feel empowered to continue succeeding as part of the PhD and to continue feeling confident and reassurance that they are capable of continuing to do that. So because I had a lot of experience at Emory uh, with organizations that do exactly this type of work, namely uh, the Initiative to Maximize Student Development, Uh, which is a grant um, awarded to universities by the National Institutes of Health to support students from underrepresented backgrounds, and also the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, I was like, oh, well, I know that there exist these organizations, but because there isn't one at Princeton, we need to do something similar so that while the university maybe applies to these grants too, there is something in place that can make the experience of neuroscience PhD students a bit more um, a neuroscience PhD students from underrepresented backgrounds more sustainable and, and, and better ultimately. And in this capacity, right, I managed more than 13 scientific leaders across all, the, all, all types of scientific training, undergrads, postdocs, graduate students, research staff uh, to uh, implement activities and events and programs to really bring awareness to the systemic issues that influence Uh, the negative experiences of students from underrepresented backgrounds. And I can talk about a few initiatives that I've marketed on my resume. For example, I uh, spearheaded uh, an application support group where we basically match uh, students at Princeton to prospective PhD applicants to get them application support. And this was an initiative that was actually started at MIT and NYU, but that our department chose to implement. Last year, we were sort of doing the whole matching process by hand. But because of my computational skills, I said, okay, well, what if we could just facilitate the matching process with a a Python script that would make this all easy so that I can focus on my research? So I wrote the script, I implemented it, and the whole matching system is completely automated. And so that makes me say, right, like, I mean, even though this is a leadership opportunity, has nothing to do with my research, I did that and I got to write it on my resume. And I'm sure that employers would die for me to make their job easier, Right. So uh, those have been the type of things that I've done both inside of the lab and outside of the lab that I've put on my resume to show to employers that I sort of have this, you know, um, well-rounded skill set.
0: Yeah, that's that's a very interesting perspective. Thank you for sharing. Um, And now, knowing how many things you do every day, uh, what brings you meaning and fulfillment
1: every day? Yeah, um, the biggest thing is definitely the opportunity to connect with people. I think, I think the, the, the realization that I needed to really consider pursuing something differently than the path I have ahead of me with the PhD was the realization that the most fulfilling moments in my day-to-day were the moments when I got to talk to my lab mates. And the moment when I got to connect with them and the moment when I got to understand their problems and understand why they weren't doing well or when they were happy and they were doing great. Those were the moments that made me continue being a scientist. And those were the moments that made me want to relish in the opportunity that I had. But it felt because these experiences were happening sporadically, because everybody's busy with their own projects. I I really was, I really asked myself, okay, well, is this something that you can compromise? In your day-to-day and the answer was uh 100 no i can't compromise that ability to connect with people um you know this is a, for example is another opportunity i have to connect with someone you know and for me though that's the highlight of my day um 100 and it always is a separate a separate i think highlight of my day as a, as a researcher is definitely the opportunity to look at data and extract meaningful information from the data i think if I could sort of categorize um you know the the things I enjoy the most is the moment when I have my data in hand and get to create beautiful visualizations to you know understand its meaning, and so it's for that reason that I really want to um you know apply continue doing that in in, in any work environment moving forward
0: mm-hmm. yeah, I absolutely agree. I also love <laughs> data visualization, so we're on the same page um and now. Uh, another question is, what does work-life integration look like for you?
1: Um, yeah, so I think that as researchers and PhD students, one of the one of the um, things that we suffer from the most, due to the systemic elements of academia, is that close close there isn't a separation between work life, unfortunately, and I think that's embedded in the system of how academia works. It's a lot, I think I really grappled with the feeling of feeling guilty when I wouldn't got, you know, um, when when the when the when the day would end and I would still have things to do and I would put it aside. I would, I would, I would feel like this sense of guilt that would sort of like consume me. It would make me feel so inadequate. And I, I knew that I wasn't the same because you know on science Twitter, there's constant discussions about how PhD students are overworked and how there's this struggle to really separating work and life. Uh, but for me, I've, I, I, really, I really think that, honestly, life is so short. <laughs> and you, you, you can't really put that identity as a scholar so front and center in your life that you forget that you have this beautiful, nuanced, complex life outside of the lab or outside of the research environment. Um, the, you know, When I think about it, one of the major life philosophies that has allowed me to succeed has been that when school goes wrong or when the lab goes wrong, who do I talk to? Who helps me do better? And because of that, I understand very intimately that my support system is my number one priority. And if I don't nourish my support system, how how can they nourish me, right? So it's for that reason that I really, really practice work-life balance, Uh, meaning I spend a lot of time with my partner. Um, I spend time with the people in my PhD that, you know, are there to cheer me on and are there to support me. Uh, I spend a lot of time making sure that these people are front and center in my life and that love always comes uh, second, which is, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, I think a lot of people are going to have some reservations to this comment, oh, but it's an investment. Well, it's an investment, but what happens when things don't go your way or what happens when um, you're you're having a bad day? Uh, you know, school is always going to be there, but the people we love aren't, and I think, I think, you know, also another thing is that, of course, like we're not, I think a lot of people are not vulnerable enough to talk about how, how, how draining of an experience the PhD can be. But I am of the belief that vulnerability is the key to solving literally all of the problems that we have here. And I, I make it a point to be vulnerable, not only in, in the lab, but also outside of the lab. It's really important that people understand that these are my limits. These are these are the things that I can accomplish. This is the timeline I have for myself, and uh, I would appreciate understanding. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah,
0: that's that's uh, very. Thank you for sharing that uh, again, and I'm sure that will resonate with so many of our listeners uh, for their husband by Hopkins conference this year. Um, and yeah. now, uh, one last question is. If there was one important piece of advice you can share with the graduate students and post uh, postdoctoral researchers as they navigate their career journeys, what would it be?
1: Okay, uh, this is uh, this is gonna be controversial, and I am okay with facing the consequences of this. Um, it's it's fine. This is how I feel about it, um, I, and I'm happy to you know if anybody emails me after I say this, like I'm happy to have a conversation with you. No no problem. Um, I remember when I started doing research, I had this gut feeling that, you know, um, I didn't really like, you know, it was something that I needed to continue doing, but it wasn't something that like really, um, uh, excited me. It wasn't, I remember feeling like, okay, this is a great opportunity. I'm, I'm thankful and I'm privileged to be able to be in it. But I, there was this gut feeling that told me, you know what, Ken, like, I don't think that you're necessarily in love with this. And there was this part of me that said, you should probably stop. Like you should, like, you should probably continue doing it. But there was also this part of me that would say, you know what, Ken, it's not that. It's probably that you feel like you're not good enough at this. It's probably like you feel like you're you're not capable enough. But there was still that gut feeling that never left me, even as my confidence grew, right, uh, in the in the scientific journey. I think that gut feeling only got bigger and bigger in grad school. And I kept on ignoring it. I've been at Princeton for three years and, I, and I've, I've kept on ignoring it, you know. Like there's, there was this thing about me that wasn't compatible with research, but I chose to sort of shut down that gut feeling. And when I would talk about it in therapy, my, my dear beloved therapist would say, um, you know, can keep on doing this, you know, maybe it's because you don't feel, maybe it's because you, um, feel like you're not good enough. And we would have like very intricate discussions. And one thing that she would always say to me is "There, you can't imagine how many people sit in front of me and tell me, you know, can, Um, I've had so many people, uh, she said, there's so many people I see that tell me, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore, but continue enduring the the struggles of the PhD. And ultimately when they graduate, they feel better. And, you know, I would take that advice. And I, I always said to myself, you know what, maybe, maybe I'm them, maybe I'm them. And, and then when I leave the PhD, I'll feel better about everything. And, and I will have feel, I will feel, I will feel proud with myself that I made it through and that i i did what i had to do to succeed in this but ultimately i think what happened is why why is it that this has to be my experience like why is it that this has to be what i live through every day why is it that i have to be upset to wake up and go to do something that doesn't nearly bring me as much joy as other things that i could be doing why is it that i haven't given myself the opportunity to listen to my my gut feeling and do something differently and I think I just had the intuition that, hey, what is more important? Is more important continuing to do this or is, is it more important to be happier, <laughs> more fulfilled? And I think that I chose the latter. I chose to be more content with my day to day and do things that I'm actually like. And, and de- finally, uncouple my sense of self-worth to my relationship with my academics and my schooling. And I, I, think, I think it's a really good decision. So. To wrap up that that, that advice, um, trust your gut feeling. Uh, listen to yourself. Really sit down with yourself and write down what exactly motivates you. Uh, maybe ask yourself if you've done as much exploration as you'd like. Uh, maybe consider, you know, taking a year off if you're on a similar boat as me to reweigh your priorities and really think about what it is that you really want. Or, um, you know, take take. take take time for yourself and to think about what really matters to you. So that's, that's my advice.
0: (laughs) Again, that was fantastic. Um, Thank you so much for this conversation. We're sure that our listeners would agree that all the practical advice you shared today was very helpful as we think about what it means to have a fulfilling career. So with that, thank you, Ken, again, for your time. And this is Horizons by Hopkins podcast and mini series a place to discover what lies beyond the horizon.
1: Thank you, Ana.